Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project based at Queen Mary, University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at at autismcinema. If you're a fan of this podcast, please do spread the word. Leave us a review, share our episodes on social media, or just drop us an email on cinemaautism at gmail.com to let us know what you like about the show. Many thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Hello and welcome to Autism Through Cinema. Uh, I'm Lillian Crawford and this week we're going to be talking about the filmmaker and video artist Isaac Julian. Uh, I'm joined by Georgia Bradburn. Hello Georgia, how are you? Hi Lillian, I'm doing great, thank you. Good, I'm pleased to hear it. And by Janet Harbert. How are you doing, Janet? I'm doing very well, so thank you. Good, I'm really pleased. Um, And I'm very glad that you both uh, agreed to have this discussion, um, which is going to be a bit different to um, some of the other podcasts that we've done so far in the series um, as we look to broaden the definitions of cinema and what cinema means and of film and autism's relationship to it. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, because my master's course was not just on film, but also on screen studies. Um, So I did some coursework on video art and installations, which really introduced me to the idea of um, video art in galleries um, as a space, which isn't something I'd really thought about prior to that point. I think the first piece of video art that I ever saw in a gallery space was Steve McQueen's Running Thunder, which is um, a short film which depicts a horse, um, a racehorse, which is dead on the floor. Um, and it's just a shot of its, its of the horse's face um, with its eye open. And at one point a fly lands on the eye and you realise that the, the horse is dead. And I saw this set up with um, a small film projector and a screen at the uh, Kunsthistorisch Museum in Vienna. And I remember thinking that this was a very strange way to look at a film, but I liked it because I was able to move around that space um, and interact with the film um, in a very different way to how I would in a cinema um, where you're normally expected to sit still and pay attention um, in in the sort of fashion that relaxed screenings, which we've talked about on the podcast a lot, attempt to free up slightly but I think the gallery space does that in quite a radically different way another film which which uh has done that is is Blue by Derek Jarman which I'm sure we'll we'll talk about because uh Derek Jarman is um one of my favorite filmmakers we've talked about Jarman a few times on the podcast although I don't think we've actually covered um any of his his films yet but he's he's very much um sort of part of the same film scene in Britain um that Isaac Julian was particularly in the 1980s when he starts making films like uh, Looking for Langston, which is going to be one of the films that we'll we'll focus on um, as part of this episode, um, which was made in 1989 and is about the the Harlem Renaissance in um, American history, um, which began in the the 1920s in in America, where Black artists um, and writers and musicians were creating art in a a radically different style for the first time um and there was discussions around um the thinker uh alan Locke, who wrote a book called um compiled book rather called the new negro um which was very influential within that and looking for langston um takes langston hughes whose poetry is also in that collection uh and reflects on his on his sexuality so this exhibition, which we're going to be talking about, um, is being staged currently at the Tate Britain in London. Um, it consists of uh, how to, how to describe the the gallery space that they've set up. It's sort of like a clock, I suppose. There's a central space um, where at- people visiting the gallery can sit, um, and they will be able to see uh, films, including Looking for Langston, um, as well as a number of his other films, um, ranging from 
the a coda to looking for Langston called Once Again Statues Never Die, which he recently made, um, and also a number of shorts, mostly from the 2000s, um, which we'll be talking about, I'm I'm sure, and we'll introduce those films as, as we get to them. But the space has a number of screens around the edges of this central space, which tell you what time the film is at. So you can go in at any point during any of the films, you go down a small corridor and then you're in a screening space. And in some of these spaces, you might have only one screen or two screens or, or more screens than that. Um, some of them are very large screens. Some of them are very small. Um, in the once again, statues never die space, the screens are are very large and projected on both sides. So people can walk around them and see uh, the films from whatever angles they choose to. Um, and when I was visiting this this exhibition this time and seeing that room in particular, which is the one with, with once again, Statues Never Die, um, I was really thinking about the possibilities of, that this would open up for um, not just an autistic audience, but, but an, a, an audience that doesn't necessarily wish to be restricted in the way that um, traditional screenings uh, place a, upon us and also on the filmmakers themselves and Isaac Julian uh, has talked um, a lot about how his his art and his work is really about sort of moving beyond the the limitations of cinema and the moving image um, to create an intervention or um, a mode of filmmaking or a mode of expression which is more in line with uh, poetry and poetics that doesn't doesn't sort of uh, remain with the form, which is why poets like Langston Hughes particularly uh, resonate with him as an artist. Uh, I, I've sort of talked a lot there. Um, I think I hope I've given a bit of a precy to to what the exhibition is, to who Julian is as an artist. Um, I'm sure that Janet and Georgia will be able to uh, fill in anything that I might have missed there. Um, so these are the ideas that I am bringing to our uh, our proverbial table um to for the discussion today um and I, i'd love to hear what you made of going to this space what interactions you perhaps had with isaac julian's work before um or, or video art more generally um which is what, what i think we should use as as a starting point for for this discussion um georgia did you want to respond to that one thing i wanted to mention is is so me personally i've always sort of found uh like the gallery installation space as more preferable, not just as as an audience, but uh, an audience member as a filmmaker as well, because it gives you so many more opportunities to express how what you're saying and how you're saying it. Um, I think the key thing, you know, the the title of the exhibition is called "What Freedom Means to Me," and I think that really encapsulates really the whole point of, of of exhibiting your work in this way because not only are you do you have the freedom to walk around these exhibitions these screens you can come in and leave them at any point um whereas in a cinema it's it's more restricted and it's not as socially acceptable to get up and walk around but it's also about the different ways you can you can get your message across it's a lot more like sculpture than it is you know two two-dimensional art it's film as sculpture in that you are not just sitting in front of a flat screen and looking at what's being what's being told. You're not like static where you are. You have that uh, agency to uh, integrate into the story and into what's being shown. And there's sort of like a personal intervention into these works. It's just so much more freeing to me. It's as someone who does create. Um, especially as an autistic person who creates, who I feel that the language of cinema is quite limited in what I can express um, based on my pre-articulative um, expressions. I, I, I wrote a lot in my um, my undergraduate uh, dissertation for, like film research project about the potential of film to uncover these sorts of new languages that get across what we're feeling and the experiences of autism that aren't able to be communicated in any other way because we don't have the tools in order to communicate them because normative language is based on neurotypicality. And I think the gallery space is such an interesting way to do that. I think once I was there in the gallery, 
um, I felt, I think I was I was in the room watching Looking for Langston, which is, you know, it's it's a lot longer than the others because it's an actual feature film. And I was just sat there and thought, oh, can I leave? Like, because I, I, I got to 30 minutes and I got quite restless. And I was like, I think I'd just like to go into another room and, and immerse myself in something else and then come back to it. For a moment, I was like, I can't do that because I'm in a cinema. And then I realised that's what everyone else was doing anyway. And I, I went to visit uh, the exhibition with two friends who joined me right at the start and they all, they both of them kind of made their way out at a certain point. So we didn't all leave at the same time because I think their limits for how much they could watch and how many different things they could see in one uh, session was, it was too much for them. But I think that's the really cool thing about it is there's no pressure to see everything. I mean, I, I'm someone who's like, I need to see everything and experience everything. So I had this thing that I wanted to stay there as long as possible. For people who didn't want to do that, you know, that's absolutely fine. And I think it takes, it, it has an accessibility to it that normal cinema going really doesn't have. So when we're talking about accessibility, there's really, um, it's all really already there. I mean, there's all sorts of other things we can do, but for sensory needs, for energy needs, for all of these things, it's incredibly um, accessible and incredibly reassuring to be in that sort of environment. I personally just love being in a space where I have that freedom to move around. And that's really what I felt in that sort of, you described it really well, like a clock space, being able to just go down these different paths and revisit them at any time that you wanted to. I just had a really great experience. I also really like the design of the uh, of the exhibition. I love that layout where you, you went into the centre, you could move through um, the films in any order that you like. There was a little uh, monitor outside that that showed you how far along you were. So you could, you know, you could go in halfway and have that typical gallery experience of watching a film starting in the middle and you're not experiencing it as, as a narrative arc as you do with most cinema. Um, so you could do that or you could choose to wait or, or go and look at something else. So, so kind of my time there seemed to be... Um, mapped according to the contingencies of how the films were playing, um, where they were. I did choose to go in more or less at the beginning of each of them if I could if I could manage that. Um, I also really liked the way that the the entrance kind of deposited you into one screen, which was the film Once Again, Statues Never Die. Um, a, a quite a recent film, I think. I think it's, uh, is it about 2020 or is it 2022? Um, and... It was, it's a really arresting film. I think, as you were saying, Lillian, the, the screens are enormous in this room. So you go in and you're kind of dwarfed by by the scale of these screens and, and the setting. I think there's one screen at either end and then one in the middle that you can watch from either side, plus these mirrors. Um, and there are also two masks in, in cases, in glass cases there, which are, um, you know, the objects that the film is engaging with and, and this idea of interrogating what the statue means, what, what, the way in which it is brought to life, the way in which it um, circulates in terms of galleries and museums and so forth. Um, but, but it took me ages to work out that the film was about that because, first of all, I, I walked in at a point at which this woman was singing this very, very beautiful, powerful song and I sat there and and you know just kind of looked from screen to screen in a bit of a daze for a while so there's something about about the gallery space that's also physically quite arresting you know and and I think I was very conscious of of where I was looking and what choices I was making to look at images and the fact that I couldn't look at all of them you know, that looking at one mm. image meant that I couldn't see another. So there was also something about my agency in that in that situation that was much more um, kind of obvious to me or foregrounded rather than where I look on the screen in the cinema, which of course is, it happens all the time. We select what we look at. But there was something about this exhibition that made me much more, more conscious of that. Um, I think I also like being put in the middle of this this discussion about statues and about the way that, you know, Western art has kind of pillaged so much from non-European cultures, has used that as a driving force for an idea of kind of a pure primitivism um, alongside, you know, slavery and the other ways in which those, those people's and their cultures were kind of repressed as so the idealism and the repression were um, brought together immediately in that, in that first film. 
Um, so I found, I, yeah, I, I found it really powerful. And I thought those themes were picked up time and time again through the exhibition, um, particularly in one of the other films, Lessons of the Hour, um, where we, um, sorry, it wasn't that one, actually. It's not Lessons for the Hour. It's the the one about Lena Bobardi, who directly, quotes a quote from, from her, many quotes in that film from her, um, asking what is what is the purpose of a museum? We think about museums as places where we put dead things now, you know, and yet these objects are full of life and um, and the importance of historical moments that resonate now rather than being something that's just left behind. So uh, yeah, I, I I liked the structure of of the um, of the exhibition, the way it directed you to that first point, but then let you find your own way after that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, and thank you for talking a bit about how what it feels like to come into that space because it is such a different environment. I think I think there are two points that were raised it, 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 listening to both of you that I just wanted to to make um, a, a mention of, um, which is that I think that in terms of the, the sort of coming in at a point during a film is very much capturing what the cinematic space used to be like before the multiplex anyway, that a picture house would sort of show one or two films on a loop and people would, you know, that's where the phrase, uh, this is where we came in comes from, is that people would sort of come in and, and, and sit down and, and watch a film at any point and they would engage with a film and pick up its plot and you wouldn't ha- necessarily have to watch it from from start to finish. And I think that there is something liberating about that, especially for people who don't necessarily want to be told to sit down at the start and get up at the end and watch something and be told what to look at for that entire time. And I think that's a really important point is that neurodivergent minds tend to be able to sort of, off, off, often to sort of take, I know for myself personally, to be able to look at multiple things at once and and absorb them all and to need that kind of stimulation rather than having to look at one thing. And that's that can be quite difficult. It can always be overwhelming at times to have to just sort of focus on a singular image and having the freedom to sort of move around but still be part of a whole or a singular um, work of art is really positive. The other thing I wanted to, um, I, th- I think it's really interesting, Janet, you talking about the sort of gallery spaces and museums more broadly um, and the interrogation of museums in particular is that this is at the Tate Britain, which has just um, just done its big uh, rehang this this year, I think it's, it's, it's fourth rehang in its history. Um, which is very much a chronological rehang for for the most part. It it sort of follows a narrative of British art. So you have this chronology, but at the same time, the the rehang has started to try to disrupt that slightly by having modern installation pieces or um, sort of uh, sculptural art placed in within that setting. And I think that's an interesting way of curating another one of the films actually in the Isaac Julian exhibition is a film called Vagabondia from 2000 which is uh filmed within the Soane's uh, the Soane's museum the the museum that Sir John Soane created in his in his own house which is not a not curated in the traditional sense there's no real sense of an order or a chronology within that building I, I don't know if either of you have been but there's uh, objects from across history um, within that museum, um, and actually, I, I recently went to the Soane's Museum for a late night visit, um, and it was very much like the sort of poetics of Vagabondia, which is the sort of floating through these spaces um, and criti- and being mindful of and critical of the processes of curation of who has placed these objects here, why I'm looking at it now, where they've come from. Um, and the kinds of narratives of power that we're being told um, exist. And I think that Isaac Julian's work in general is really in interrogating that. The, the film at the start of the exhibition that we were talking about, um, Once Again, Statues Never Die, um, has a, includes footage of um, the Benin Bronzes. It has uh, footage from the Pitt Rivers Museum, where um, Anne Locke was the first Black Rhodes scholar. Um, and it also... Some of the footage within that film, it was banned in France. That it was, it was, it was illegal to to see to see this footage because it criticizes a colonial history of France. Um, and it, by disrupting 
these narratives and the sort of the way we're told to look at things to me has a resonance um with the with the neuroqueer which we've we've talked about a lot um in terms of refusing to sort of mask to um to to the ways in which we're told to appreciate cinema and to, and to look at film um so the, the, these are just sort of ideas that i i had listening to to what both of you were saying um i don't i don't know if that's something that you both get gaining in terms of the actual content of isaac julian's films if he, if is if is that what he's trying to to create this this sense of disruption i, I think I think for me, it's it's definitely a positive thing, and I think that the 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 experience of the exhibition, its, it's architecture, mirrors the time and space themes of of the works. You know that Julian's constantly trying to, and I think successfully in m- most cases, assemble um, different versions of an event that happens across time, and and he brings them together so that you can see how things are repeated or how things are, are connected across time. Um, I think that there, for example, with looking for Langston, I think it was made in the 80s, but he finds this moment back in the 1920s in, um, in Harlem that is a history that completely makes sense in that time. And I think it makes sense, again, in a different way now. Um, it was made at the, at the height of, of um, the HIV AIDS um, impact of the of of that virus um a time of great homophobia and and here we are in in a different moment so i think for i, I think yes i think mostly that's it makes sense to have this interrogation of of history that is um perhaps uncomfortable in in some ways and it makes it, 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 you know you can't watch his work without thinking about the politics of collecting and the whole of the european historical practices in in that regard i i would say i have some sense of a restriction that operates in isaac julian's work in in terms of its thematic that there's this concept of beauty um that i think i was mentioning before we started recording but i in reading interviews with him it he, it comes up time and time again and I, I just began to wonder about this and think about whether this is actually some kind of limitation on his practice that there's a real kind of f- sense that that the work that he makes has to be beautiful and i think looking for the langston mm. starts off with this it starts off with very very beautiful young black men and it's positing desire in their relationships explicitly implicitly um, it's building that subtext into history and making it, it explicit. But I think it continues through his work in a way that we're we're never allowed to see scenes that aren't beautiful, it seems to me. And if, even if they're about a form of ugliness, mm. um, which we get in a film that I liked a lot, actually, Lessons of the Hour from 2019, which is um, the journey into the life and times of Frederick Douglass, uh, described in the catalogue as a visionary abolitionist, freedom fighter, activist and writer who lived uh, throughout for a long period of 19th century. So even in this film, you the the violence that was surrounding him in terms of the lynching or whipping of slaves is just inferred. We get the sound of a whip, the feet of, of a body of, of someone who's, who's being hung from a tree. Um, but the ugliness kind of stays off, you know, off view, off sight. I'm wondering now whether there's a sense in which, you know, that kind of binds him into something where if these films weren't beautiful, if black subjects weren't made aesthetically pleasing, would they be in a gallery? Is is there actually the weight of something about the, a Western aesthetics fascination with beauty that actually comes to bear on his work? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, w- I wonder what you think of those, that, that idea. I think that's really fascinating. Um, I mean, I went to see, there's an exhibition at the Barbican at the moment um, of Carrie Mae Weems' photography. Um, she's another artist who um, sort of started, really started making, uh, she's about the same age as Isaac Julian, I think, and sort of made films um, and and took photographs ar- around the same time and has a similar sort of retrospective that's ne- that's currently on in the Barbican's exhibition space, which is very different to um, the one at the Tate Britain in that it's on over two floors. Um, and the centrepiece of that exhibition is this huge um, sort of Cinerama type 
screen, which is what four or five projectors, I think. Absolutely massive work. And it does have, I mean, it has beautiful aspects to it. In fact, there's a very similar um visual motif to the once again Statues Never Die, which is used on the poster, which is uh, probably the most gorgeous singular image in Isaac Julian's work, which is the snow, which is rising up um, on a black man in a in a tuxedo, um, which, as you say, is is sort of the way that this exhibition has been promoted, and it's very much at the heart of this exhibition. Um, and it's also in the Carrie Mae Weems, but she she uses things like um, uh, documentary footage of the sixth of January um, insurrection at the um, Washington Capitol, which is intercut with. Um, footage of 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 circuses and so on it is there's some really nasty imagery within her work i suppose it's interesting that that's on at the barbican which looks at sort of lesser known artists perhaps whereas isaac julian is at, is at the tate and is is framed within in this way so maybe that's maybe that maybe maybe there is some something to that and and, and what modes of disruption are used. I mean, some of some of the footage used in Carrie May Weems' work still has like vice watermarks on it and stuff. It's it's not as stylized in the way that that Isaac Julian's art is. Um, Georgia, what do you what do you think about that concept? I think the the idea of it being sort of stylized or beautiful and the sort of the commentary there about how the things that he's talking about showing about how that depicts them. To me, it's 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 less of it about being stylized, but more more sensory in a way, because I think the films that aren't in black and white, they're very they're very saturated in terms of colors. You know, there's a lot of color in a lot of his works that aren't in black and white. I thought, um, you know, Vagabondia, for example, um, even um, Ten Thousand Waves. That one was also very colorful, even though the subject of it um, is something is about you know a tragedy. Uh, it's about the uh, the cockle farmers uh, on the coast of Lancashire, uh, Chinese um, cockle farmers who who were tragically killed, but there are a, a sort of scenes of fantasy reenactments um, that are so beautiful. And then there's the the, the moment of um, Maggie Chung as sort of like um, I can't remember the exact context of it, um, so forgive me for that. But she's depicting some sort of mythical figure, and she's wearing this beautiful um, white gown and she sort of seems like she's floating and obviously it's Maggie Chung so she's like an icon of 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 Chinese Hong Kong cinema um so again very beautiful but for for me it it, it was more about the enjoyment of seeing these these images and the dissonance that has with sort of the context sort of made it part of the experience for me because I felt it on a complete other level I wanted to talk about um, once again, statues never die in particular, because that was the that's the first thing you walk into, and it sets such a precedent because it moved me so intensely as a piece. Um, also, because it was quite overstimulating, because you have all these these five massive screens, uh, and then the point I think we mentioned, like Alice Smith. Uh, who's the singer um she sings at a certain point it's this beautiful sequence and i just found it so um moving um even though a, a lot of the contents of the film is 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 a is a conversation uh between alan locke and um barnes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it was barnes and locke having this conversation about sort of the uh the the history and meaning of African art and how and its appropriation by by Western civilization, um, and it just sort of culminates in these sort of beautiful moments of of reminiscence and reflection. That to me, as as someone who, you know, I am I'm not someone who is greatly affected by uh, the traumas of colonialism as as you know a white uh, British person. So it doesn't affect me on, on on that level of personal relation, but it's still no matter who you are, it's incredibly moving, and it's less about the content of it, but the space that you're in, and the way that it makes you feel. And I think that is quite radical, because it goes beyond um, the contents of the film, and it goes beyond the meaning, and it's about the potential of art and the freedom that there is in art to make things feel felt. 
um, rather than just thought. And I think that's such a huge part of his work. That's one of the main things I sort of got from it. It's not having the, the fear of, of that restriction in a way. It's it's an intervention into the senses as well as, as you know, intellectually. So I, I, I do feel like that implication of beauty in it is, is, is quite radical in that sense because it's, you know, these beautiful images can have so much within them and so many dimensions, like again, like sculpture that can be enjoyed in that same way and still process and, and, and still these things aren't being swept over the rug at the same time, I don't think. Yeah, I think that um that that's that's idea of a sensory cinema is something that you can get in a gallery space to a far greater extent than than you can in a cinema. I mean you can of course get that in a cinema space more than you would get from watching a film on a laptop or a or a TV screen at home because you do have this sort of three-dimensionality to the the space of sound and 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 image, and it creates um, a sort of a haptics, I suppose, and, and to to bring in a haptic theory around these films. And I think that it's important to contextualize Julian as well, which I should have done at the start of this podcast, but um, a, within the new queer uh, cinema uh, concept, which is uh, a term coined by. B. Ruby Rich at the start of the 1990s to describe the kinds of uh, queer films, particularly coming out of America, um, at, at, at sort of late late 80s and into the 90s, um, which the Barbican's just done uh, a big series on on some of the sort of lesser known queer films of of the 1990s. But um, it would be films like Cheryl Dunny's The Watermelon Woman, for example, which is a a, a favorite of mine and one that I would also I also was thinking about looking at Isaac Julian's films and the way that um bodies sort of come together and for me one of the most the the best scene that sort of perhaps encapsulates this is in Looking for Langston which is a film I've I've loved for for many years and was really my my main sort of awareness of Isaac Julian uh prior to seeing this exhibition and prior to watching some of his other features like uh, Young Soul Rebels which is a more conventional film but in looking for langston there's a scene where um sort of the figure of beauty i mean he's referred to as beauty within the film comes to see um a man called alex in a field um and it's a reading of um richard bruce nugent's poem smoke lilies and jade which is an absolutely stunning poem and the way that isaac julian lifts the poetic imagery of that poem into reality is something that is really special to to his filmmaking in in terms of actually sort of creating this field of poppies and having the smoke rising and having these these two men's bodies sort of coming together in in the way that they do i i suppose actually if i was if to say that i was disappointed with an aspect of this exhibition i think after seeing that space that we've been talking about of once again statues never die which is to me absolutely mind-blowing i mean i was i completely took my breath away going into 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 that room and the 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 possibilities of it watching looking for langston it wasn't it didn't quite capture that in the same way it's in a much smaller room it's two screens i think in the room where they're screening looking for langston and and perhaps in some of the other rooms as well i i got the the sense that we were still looking at it from one perspective um even though there are the multiple screens which i think is 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 helpful there isn't that freedom of movement there isn't that liberate sense of liberation of mobility that you get from that first room perhaps in some of the other rooms um i mentioned earlier uh the uh derek jarman's film blue which was first shown on um BBC Four with with a soundtrack coming through on Radio Three, so people would sort of listen to their radio and and watch at the same time to create a space. But I've seen it staged in a number of exhibitions. There's a big Derek Jarman um, retrospective um, at Manchester Art Gallery last uh, beginning of last year, and I remember there being a, a small room with with blue, which is just this screen of Eve Klein blue. And the soundtrack being played in a gallery space, um, and the same thing was done at the at Somerset House, I think, recently for their horror exhibition. So I've seen it a few times staged in that way, and it, it I find it almost quite frustrating because to me it's still creating. You have the potential to lift blue off the screen almost and surround people with with the the color of that film and the sound and to really play with the sound design of it to still stage it in that sort of 
um, conventional mode is quite frustrating to me. Um, and I suppose I gained, a, I got a sense of that looking at some of the Isaac Julian films within the gallery space, um, that after being offered the potential for something very, very different, that actually some of it fell into um, the traditional staged relationship of spectator and and art that we we traditionally have. That's not to say that I am proposing that all gallery spaces become these sort of crazy immersive exhibitions of Vincent van Gogh's work where you have sort of massive projections of Starry Night. But that seems to appeal to people. I don't know, I don't really know because I haven't been to one of those, but I have been to art exhibitions and to art pieces where you do sit on the floor or lie on the ground or and and see things sort of projected all around you um, or displayed all around you. And I find that kind of that kind of display is really interesting to me. And I think that to see Isaac Julian's films curated and staged in, in a way like this is um, is something very exciting. Um, I don't know how you feel about that. And may, maybe we should tie that specifically to why that might um, why that might be appealing to someone who is neurodivergent. Um, perhaps perhaps we should bring in uh, that aspect. I was wondering about that in particular with the room that had uh, lessons of the hour, the um, the the exhibition. I think it was ten screens, mostly mm-hmm. in kind of set out quite horizontally. So it, it was kind of a, a, a horizon. Um, and I found myself precisely sitting on the floor and wanting wanting to be low down, wanting to be quite relaxed. And it was the room that I think I was most mesmerised within, that I went into that kind of reverie of just having to give over to the to the sounds and uh, the, and the images, the colour that you've you've talked about, Georgia. You were talking about the the lushness, the the, the, the saturation of some of these images, um, and yeah, what you were just mentioning then, Lillian, about the the kind of the immersiveness um, of gallery spaces and the, the, the you know gallery spaces can be can invite that kind of a, a immersion in the work, and that was the one thing that did it for me. And I was wondering, as a as an holistic person, um, what this felt like for someone who is autistic. I was it, I found my attention being my, my senses very very heightened in that room. That the color was drew me to different screens and held me in different screens. The sound led me. Um, it seemed, the sound seemed very separated out. Um, and yet the screens would offer often offer different angles, different perspectives of the same sequence, the same character, the same landscape. Um, so you could be in the same moment, but in different places. So it kind of made me feel lots of different stuff about where I was and how I was watching. And it, that that sense of being able to see from multiple perspectives that cinema can't give you unless it's doing split screen stuff. Um, that that to me felt like quite a lot of our descriptions when, when you're talking about um, having an experience in more sensory than cognitive terms in a way that that feels much more kind of bodily than than the way in which film reviews tend to treat films as quite cognitive uh, experiences. Yeah, there's there's a, a joke that's sort of going around online at the moment about how neurodivergent people can only watch films if they have another screen that's got something that's sort of like visually um, exciting. So an example would just be like clips from Family Guy or like someone playing a mobile game. Like you need to have those two things at once in order to focus. <laughs> it's so odd to link that to this, but it's sort of whilst having all of those different sensory uh, stimuli everywhere can be quite overwhelming. There is that freedom to leave, which I think is really, really great and important. I think if I were to be in a space like that for a long time, I would do that. But I also enjoy having those different viewpoints, especially in um, the uh, Statues Never Die because there were so many screens and they weren't all sort of next to each other, they were all arranged um, almost like sort of like standing mirrors. And then you had the mirrors going around. So there were sort of mirrors in the corner. And then you could also watch the images reflected and, and um, distorted from those mirrors. So there's all sorts of different things to watch. And it sort of, it it feels 
like I'm getting more than I would just if I was watching it all on one surface. Because to an extent, I think in um, Lessons of the Hour, it's all you're kind of looking in one direction. And so and it's still great because there's different things happening on the different screens. But with the first one, uh, with Statues Never Die, there is that more interactive element of I can move as someone also with ADHD as well as autism that is very important for me is my intervention um within what I'm watching and my involvement which is also why I get so frustrated watching long films all the time because I'm like I could be you know making something like this or I could be uh, being involving myself in the world like these characters are rather than just sitting idly and watching it there's such an element of of personal involvement um, that is definitely still there with things like Lessons of the Hour where there are multiple screens, but um, is so much more prevalent when they are arranged in a way that really does force you to explore. I think I sat in about four different positions in, during the entirety of my time in uh, Statues Never Die because I was I wanted to see how it would look or feel different from another side. And that having that liberty to choose how I can experience this film is something that you often really don't get um, and is really not as socially acceptable, which is something we've talked about before. The sensory overload for me, it was, it was a level of sensory euphoria that I always love when I go into a gallery space because it is really all about the installation, but there's so many different ways you know, you could watch it over and over again and from a different from a different vantage point. Um and it just makes it makes me feel more fulfilled in my viewing and more like I've I, I go to watch films because really of the sensory experience. And that's sort of like the best example of it, I think, in the gallery space. Yeah. Um, thank you. I'm I'm glad that we were able it's it's good to to be able to, to talk about and listen to to these things because I think that um I don't always get the impression that galleries care <laughs> about uh access in this way i mean pe- they care about access but they when they talk about access and i've, I've had this these discussions with curators and with um people who work in, in in galleries and curation when they talk about access they mean access um in terms of sort of readability i suppose they're very obsessed with reading ages and you know how to do labels and things like that and Access doesn't necessarily to them always mean um, it's it's more about whether or not you can actually understand the art, shall we say, rather than rather than how you are able to or supposed to, um, in inverted commas, uh, engage with art. And I, I I think it's something that is being discussed more um, in all artistic spaces. But it's very easy, I suppose, with a cinema to say, uh, do you have a relaxed screening program? Do you have um, spaces that people can go to? Can people move around? Can people, you know, can we change the lighting levels, the sound levels, all of these things? Whereas I don't think that galleries necessarily have a sort of relaxed, uh, r- relaxed gallery time, I suppose is a way of putting it. But then I almost wonder if they need to, because a lot of spaces within galleries generally feel quite relaxed, I, I, I suppose. I mean, unless you go to see... And as you go sort of on a Saturday at peak time in London and there's loads of tourists everywhere and it's very busy. I mean, if you go, I don't know when you went to see an exhibition like this, but it's a time, you get a sort of timed allocated space that they've, they've clearly only allow a certain number of people into the exhibition at any one time, which I think really allowed that freedom of movement um, that I often find uh, can be overwhelming in, in a gallery I liked the fact that the light, the lighting was quite low level. Sometimes in gallery spaces, particularly when you have very white walls, like at the Tate, the the light can actually be very uh, can be quite blinding. Um, but I do wonder sometimes when when exhibitions are curated, what what was sort of what considerations there are for how a neurodivergent person is supposed to be engaging with with that space. Um, but as I say, for me personally, it's a lot easier to engage with than perhaps just sitting and watching a film is because you do have the freedom to be able to look at things for as long as you want to engage with it. 
and I think that the the lack of pressure of that in this exhibition, what I really loved was the fact that you could see when things were starting. Because if you're someone like me, and it's like I I would much rather sort of consume something from the beginning to the end, and I have to sort of see everything, and I like things ordered. But then also to have that disrupted is very exciting. To have the the knowledge of that freedom is also a very reassuring thing for me. Um, that's not to say that you don't still get people tell you off. I mean, I was when I went to see this again recently, I was at the rehang and someone told me off for walking in front of something while they were looking at it. And I thought that was a bizarre thing to tell someone off for. Um, it would be like being in the uh in the Once Again Statues Never Die um room and walking in front of one of those screens and someone getting annoyed at you for walking in front of it when it's exactly the purpose of that space and what you're supposed to do with the art. Um I don't understand why people tell people off for these things, but they do, um, which is why we have relaxed screening programs, I suppose, <laughs> but, um, because it's it's always interesting to me where the points of conflict are as well. Um, I don't know how if, if if you two have experience of this or, or something to say to it, but it's something that I've had a fair few experiences with, which is why I'm interested in talking about relaxed spaces and accessible spaces because um and and or, or rather more importantly which I suppose is part of what autism through cinema does and what having channels and conversations with people who aren't neurodivergent is is to make people aware of how other people might behave or how they might respond to art or film in a way which is different to to them um which i think is 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 very important it, it being within this space felt very special to me um it felt it was one that i felt very comfortable in and i didn't really want to come out of um i sort of felt can i live in this this world where I'll go down one path and watch a film and then I'll come back and I can read some more of my book until the next film starts. And that 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 to me is how I want to live my life. And it actually almost felt to some extent like I'd entered a real world space which mirrors the structure of my own brain and how I think about things is that I I am I am sort of constantly engaging with with these things, but I'm always needing to be able to sort of move immediately on to the next thing to engage with and there was a structure to it which i also liked um so yeah sorry i'm i'm rambling a bit but that that's for me why why this why these conversations are are so important what what you were just saying that about um about making making the gallery kind of your home reminds me of your writing about the wittgenstein film and um that that we were going to discuss we haven't yet um and that sense of making the cinema your home when you were a student and just going there with your books and so forth. And I, I, I share that. I have that real sense of, of of not wanting to leave that space. It felt very, very comfortable. But I'm glad that you mentioned being told off because it 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 feels to me that there are, the gallery has many, many freedoms that we've talked about. And you've talked about those freedoms from particularly from an autistic point of view, the freedom of relaxation, of what that really means, of of, of the layout and so forth. But I think that there, for me, there is also a class restriction in a gallery that you don't have in a cinema. And I think that that sort of sense in which you might be told off, you know, I often feel like that in galleries, that I might be told off by an attendant, you know, if you get a bit too close or you're being a bit too loud or, um, you know, you or, you know, people monitoring other people in the way that you're talking about, I think is is a historic sense of the gallery being a little bit like a church. You know, it has to be quite quiet. You have to absorb artworks in a certain sort of revered um, atmosphere. So I so I think there's that restriction to the that's the underbelly of, of the freedoms we've talked about, along with possibly that ideology of things having to be beautiful. Those, the, the, those would be the two restrictions that I could feel when I was there. But I wanted to ask you um, about a particular work in light of what you've both been saying about your experience of particular rooms. And it's the work, um, the Lino, Lino Bobardi, A Marvellous Entanglement piece from uh, 2019 that was in a much smaller room than the others. And it had two quite large screens um, that came to an angle in, in, in a corner. So they were, they, they were touching each other. Um, and 
you were quite close as a, as a viewer to that. You were quite close to the screens and it was possibly quite overwhelming, the scale of what you're experiencing. Um, I, it was one of the, it was one of the exhibits that I enjoyed very much, partly because I, I had, didn't really know much about Lena Bobardi. I'm a bit late to the party um, in terms of the celebration of her work. Um, and I should probably, probably just mention she's an Italian. She was an Italian architect who was uh, working in the period of modernism, um, who built her most celebrated buildings in, in Brazil. Um, and she was very committed to dance and choreography. Um, and her, her buildings very much represent this. And Julian's take on her was to use choreography to um, explore her buildings, as well as quoting from her, her works. Um, and of course, choreography is one of the main themes that runs through his work that we haven't yet talked about. And I was wondering what you felt about that, that um, he he uses chore choreography as a way to bring the body into um, historical subjects, into a kind of what seems to be quite a pronounced uh, materiality of his filmmaking, a sense in which, you know, in that film, we see dancers kind of exploring what the light feels like to them. You can see how it's affecting their eyes, their um, as they move towards it, away from it, and so forth. Uh, we see dancers moving up and down a very beautiful wooden staircase uh, in ways in which their their bodies are uh, kind of uh, having to move in relation to the the physical environment. So yeah, I guess I just wanted to open up a discussion about about that particular room and and ask you what you felt about about that film. To me, this is a really fascinating film. Um, because as you say, it touches on choreography and I suppose the relationship between dance and um, neurodivergence is something that I'm, I'm very interested in as well um, in, in terms of movement as disruption and from the, okay, take an example, uh, in the Carrie Mae Weems exhibition at the Barbican, there's a piece called Holocaust Memorial, which has Weems dancing between the sort of the the concrete slabs of the of the famous um, Holocaust Memorial in in Berlin by Peter Eisenman and she's sort of dancing between them to create a disruption of um, the sort of static version that that memorial creates. I mean, make of that what you will. Um, I, I I suppose in in terms of how you actually re respond to that, but I think that this film is doing a very similar thing in that we have these sorts of architectural monuments which are very static and and stylized in a certain way and then you have this sort of liberation of movement through through dance which um to me Isaac Julian is doing in a very similar way to 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 Weems in in that he is as I said earlier sort of questioning the structures of power the things that we're told to sort of take as um objective static truth um and adding a sense of of freedom and dynamism to to that version of truth to create something Something that's new. Well, something I want to, I want to, I'll, I'll show it to you two uh, as as an image. But um, it's uh, the the people listening can can Google this, um, which is the the Luna Bobardi film um, in its original configuration uh, in Philadelphia. I don't know how well you can see this on my screen, um, but it's it's in a pyramid. So you have all of the screens arranged in a giant triangle in a much much bigger space than the one in the exhibition. Um, Ben Isaac Julian has been able to create. I think that's really that's really interesting in terms of what you also mentioned in terms of sort of the gallery as a revered space and it almost being church-like because that that to me is a very sort of religious-looking um, monument and the way that you're supposed to sort of fixate on on, on this art and the way it's being being structured. Um, the fact that Isaac Julian is is taking apart the way that the screens are displayed in a way that a lot of other filmmakers have done, um, something that Chantal Ackerman's um, video art certainly does, um, Agnes Varda as well, which is taking a space and sort of inviting people to move through it in a different way to how you you, you typically would do. So those movements and those ideas of choreography and the closest that we get to it is enhanced almost by the actual sort of framing of the screens itself. Um, 
I suppose it's just the limitations of space then in in this gallery that they don't actually have as enormous a space to do that as perhaps you would if these works were being shown in isolation, which normally they are. I mean, this is the first time that they've sort of all been brought together in this way. And I think that that's very exciting and for the reasons that we've discussed, but it also does mean that you don't necessarily pay attention to a singular work in the same way that you otherwise might do. I mean, um, if you spend, if you go to this exhibition and watch all of the films in each of the rooms, you're looking at pushing four hours of gallery time, which is a huge amount of time. I mean, no exhibition ever expects you to spend four hours in it. Um, mainly because you don't sell as many tickets. You want people to go through as quickly as possible. Um, so it's quite an extraordinary thing to expect people to engage with a work of one artist for four hours. And I'm sure that you were as fatigued as perhaps I was by some of the films in, uh, at, at this point, that, that after you've sort of seen 50 minutes of Looking for Langston, that then you see these, these films about... Um, well, there's the one about the boats, um, and there's um, I'm trying to think what other ones there are that are sort of uh, looking at forms of social justice that don't perhaps quite align in the same way that some of the others do. They're not focused on the same forms of injustice that some of Julian's other films are, and I suppose it's a big ask of people. Um, whereas what I find really compelling about sort of video art in isolation on its own is that you can sort of take it in as part of a, a broader sense of the gallery. Um, and of course, there are there are pieces of video art that have have really pushed the limits of, of how much time people can spend in a gallery space. I mean, the most famous examples are probably Douglas Gordon's uh, 24-hour Psycho and Christian Mark Clay's The Clock, which are 24-hour artworks these are these are artworks that you could in theory stay in forever just watching on a loop um uh one day at a time the the clock is sort of piecing together um footage of clocks from films that that sort of synchronizes in real time in 24 hour psychos um the film psycho slowed down to the point that it would take 24 hours to watch the film um psycho I mean, that's that's pushing people's attention spans in a whole new direction, I suppose, in, in very different ways. And that's the purpose of it and the way that we we look at art. But yeah, I, I, I suppose while we've been talking about the Isaac Julian exhibition as a relaxed space where we can appreciate these works in a very relaxed way, there is also this huge demand supposedly placed on us that if you are actually to to experience this thing, in its entirety as a whole, then it is it is a big ask to expect people to be able to to sort of sit in that in in that space for for an an extended period of time. We haven't talked about that room <laughs> that had we've sort of touched on Western Union small boats and ten thousand waves. Um, it was the room that I had a bit of an issue with, to be honest. And you've you sort of referenced that. Um, when you were just talking just now, Lillian, about, you know, the kind of like slightly less successful, you, I can't remember your phrase. It was it was a very nice way of explaining um, that these works don't quite belong in the same uh, place as, as the other works in terms of their critique. Um, yeah, I just wondered what you both made of them, of these kind of attempts to reach into other histories, the history of the Morecambe Bay tragedy of 2004. And four and Western Union small boats about the experience of migrants who have died in the crossing, which was kind of performed by dancers. And I, I just found that a little bit tricky. You know, people fishing out sweaters from the sea and and drawing them onto land as a choreography, and it, it made it made me uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um... It did in the same way for me. And I think that perhaps that's because with some of these films, it's very clear what Isaac Julian's positionality is in relation to, to these films. Um, I think that it's very obvious when you're watching something like Looking for Langston, but this is not actually really a film necessarily about Langston Hughes or about the Harlem Renaissance in a traditional sense. This isn't 
this isn't a biopic. This isn't Oppenheimer. This is um, this is a, a film a film about exploration of of art and poetics and how we we seek them in our own time and place and in our own positionality. Whereas these other films seem to have um, Western Union small boats and Ten Thousand Ways. Well, actually, no more, more. More, I'm more specifically thinking of Western Union small boats because this is a film which which has a very clear, timely social message, um, and it's about something that is happening now, which I think has 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 its place. I just, I just, and and perhaps perhaps in 2007, that film might have had a a, a different impact. I suppose it also does have an impact now, but maybe to a lesser extent because we're we have our own sort of crisis that we're we're living through at the moment and it it feels slightly disjointed from from what we're looking at i mean a good example i suppose would be um to watch uh, steve mcqueen's most sort of timely films that he's still making now um i don't know if you've seen his grenfell film at the serpentine but it's absolutely astonishing and it's a film where he basically sort of has this drone circling um the grenfell tower um, and you're in this space and you're just sort of forced to stare at Grenfell for for however, I mean, it feels like an absolute age and to sort of meet eyes with it almost, I, I suppose. And I think that it's a form of interrogation that really we in this country now are only just sort of starting to to look at in an artistic sense. I know the National Theatre is doing um, a production using the voices of um, survivors from, from, um, from Grenfell um at the moment and i i don't know this isn't really talking about autism per se but i I think in terms of what these films are doing and what we're grappling with it it felt to me more obvious why certain films were being made and placed within this exhibition than than others per, per se um and i think that part of the reason why some of those films were included is because not many people know who isaac julian is. And it's a good thing to show sort of the fact that he is this the, an, an incredibly versatile artist, and that he's created a huge amount um, of art. And of course, and I mentioned, I mentioned Young Soul, Soul Rebels briefly, but it's a wonderful film um, from 1991, um, which very much sort of feels like a part of that uh, that queer cinema that's really um, uh, emerging alongside Derek Jarman's work. He's also made doc, um, some feature documentaries, one about. Black exploitation films and and one with um which Tilda Swinton wrote and narrated about about Derek Jarman and Derek Jarman's filmmaking. So he's he's someone who's produced an absolutely incredible range of work. Um I think that the exhibition does a good job of of showing that versatility. I just wonder if there needed to perhaps be quite so much on display. And maybe there could have been more more tangible objects as well i mean there are some in the central space there's a cabinet with some some stills and some some notes and things but i i quite like i quite like the idea that within a retrospective like this you would actually have those sorts of tangible objects of of creation i mean with derek jarman's stuff i mean you have his incredible notebooks and um the the exhibition i mentioned at the manchester art gallery really had a lot of his fine art which people perhaps hadn't um seen before in addition to his music videos for the Pet Shop Boys and and Blue and um, it's just an absolutely incredible versatility to it and I think that if you're going to create those that sort of sense of haptics that you have within the space, um, it's useful. I mean, you also mentioned Janet about the uh, the cases with some of the objects within the um, the once again statues never die space and again in terms of accessibility and what you were also talking about in how in sort of from a a class or 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 a sort of or an academic versus non-academic approach to looking at, at, at these galleries i mean there's 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 a lack of hand holding to the extent that you really don't actually get anything given to you at all there's 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 some liner notes that you have in a little booklet which is useful for contextualizing the films but there's really nothing there's nothing really sort of telling you um what's actually going on which i like personally i mean for me that's that's the best way to approach art is to not be told what to make of it but um i i i do wonder if there were some aspects of of this exhibition that might leave people slightly held at arm's length into into, and, and especially when those contexts are so important and different and when these films are being made i wanted to echo the fact that yeah i i i didn't really uh, I was a bit confused by the fact that um, 
10,000 waves and Western Union small boats were in the same room and it felt quite weird because it, it felt like the only real thematic links between them was about was about tragedy and the reenactment of tragedy, which is 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 like a uh, is a tangible link there, but I felt like both of them d- had needed their own space, and I think in addition to that, building on what you said about having those physical objects there, I think that really helped, especially with once again statues never die, and I just wished that something similar was applied to those other rooms so that the experience felt more more interactive and more tangible and I had more links to the context of the work because again you know I had barely any knowledge about the the tragedy of Morecambe Bay um I had to read it in the booklet and I felt like rather than reading that information I just wanted to have it in its own space devoted to that uh so I could enjoy it more um I don't know but I yeah I agree that I think there was a lot there and I I enjoyed the fact that it was quite a weird uh, assortment of works and how different they all were. Um, I really enjoyed because it, it really gives you the scope of Julian's work, which I suppose is part of the point of having this this collection. But I do feel like those two inst- those two films needed their own spaces, and um, I think yeah, prioritizing those would have been would have been good. No, thank you. Um, and I, I really appreciate both of you engaging with with this. And um, it was quite a big ask. Um, some of the films that we choose are ninety minutes long. Um, some of them involve going off to off to the Tate Britain to 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 see the films. But I, I think it was it was an aspect of cinema that I'd really wanted to talk about for a while. And when I saw that this exhibition was going to be happening, and knowing what I already did about Isaac Julian's work, I thought it would be a really fun um, and interesting to discussion to sort of push the brand boundaries of what we, we've already been talking about. So so thank you to, to both of you um, for doing that. And uh, yes, I very much hope that um, the people listening have been able to um, gain a sense of this exhibition if you are able to to get to see it while it's, I think it's still on until end of August. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, and I'm not sure when this episode will go out, but um, it uh, ho- ho- hopefully you'll be able to see it and if not then uh, the films are, are generally available to watch online I believe um, and hopefully we've given some good descriptions of, of what actually uh, is contained within those films um, so yes thank you very much for listening you have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary University of London Our thanks to 344 Audio for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Many thanks for tuning in.